well. Welcome to the Red Chair. We have a super special guest and a good friend, April Rini, a mm-hmm. uh, fellow young global leader from the World Economic Forum. At least we used to be young. I used to be young. I mean, we have you to are call ourselves young. old at some point. <laughs> I don't know when that time is. April is a futurist, a book author. She just launched uh, Flux. Uh, of which you'll tell us everything about, an advisor, an investor. April, it's so good to have you here in Lisbon. Why, why did you come to Lisbon, by the way? Thank you, and I'm just really happy. This is like a reunion of old friends that exactly. also get to have this conversation. Um, so I'm here for the launch of the Portuguese edition of my book, which uh, it's Flux in English, and the English translation of Portuguese is Who Moved My Future? Um, and you can think of that as... Who moved my view of where things are heading? Who, who moved my career? Who moved my expectations? There's a lot of flux in the world today. And so I was here, I'm here for that. And also I spoke at the Estoril Conference. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Which is an incredible event. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so this is a conference that's apparently it's in its 13th edition, mm-hmm. but this is this year was new. And it, it used to be about Portugal looking internal, like politics and what Mm -hmm. do we do internally. And this is now Portugal in the world. What does this mean? And the theme for this year was for for planet, for people, for peace, rebalancing our world. And in particular, what does it mean to build a future of hope? And so it was this great convening of, um, there were about 3,000 people, half of whom were students from Nova and from other business schools around the world, and then quite a mixture of business people, um, academics, advisors, etc. So it was a really good, I mean, talk about a global convening happening in Estoril, which I think is very symbolic of Portugal's place in the world right now as mm-hmm. a real emerging um, and established to um, global leader. Re-emerging, <laughs> exactly. And a new kind of age of discovery, right? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Now, Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, we've mm. known each other for many years, but uh, who is April? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I start with that? I think, um, so it's funny, there's the what do you do versus who are you? And for me, a lot of that is blended. So many people today know me as a futurist. And then the next question is, what's that? What is right? That? And the term futurist didn't I mean, it existed 10 years ago, but people, most people didn't have that kind of title. I'm helping organizations and individuals, but helping organizations better understand what's on the horizon, like where is the future heading and how do we fit into it? And to be clear, I'm not trying to predict the future. Anybody who tells you they can predict the future. That's so disappointing. I thought you were going to tell me everything. If only here's your crystal ball, (laughs) but rather, and this is sort of segues a little bit into the book, is this sense of we humans really want to know what's going to happen. And if the last two and a half years haven't been an exercise in realizing how little we actually know, can control. We can predict, right? We, we yeah. can't predict the future. It's... And so it's the last two years have been a great confirmation of some of my work, but helping organizations prepare for many different possible futures. And what are those possibilities? And what are the macro trends and forces that are playing out? And so some... Um, some, particularly in the startup world, I do a lot of work with startups and governments and companies and all kinds of different business business uh, models. But they often say to me, they're like, oh, you're thinking about all those things that we know are important, like in the back of our mind. But we just don't have the time to actually. We don't have the time. We're, we're focused on this quarter. We're focused on building our product. Right. And even if we did, we wouldn't know where to start. 
So what, what kind if, of things? What kind of things well, do you actually think you know, about? And here we can. It's fun to kind of these days say the future of fill in the blank. So I've been focused on the future of work. Since long before it was a hashtag, I was giving talks about remote work in 2013, right? I mean, you're a little bit ahead of the time. People were, like, eh. <laughs> and then it's like, wow, look, there you go. And there the is. joke is that two decades of future of work projections played out in about two quarters in yes, 2020. That nobody definitely predicted, right, right? Right. The future of mobility, the future of education and learning. The future of business model disruption. All of these would be deemed future of public health, future of climate. I mean, you, you'll specialize in a few of these themes, but when we talk about the, where are we heading, and when you think about something like the future of work, it's not just the office, it's not just teams, it's no. not just technology. There's so much wrapped into that, even things like the future of work is not just jobs in terms of like one employer doing one thing. All of these themes, the great resignation gets caught yeah. in it. But helping people try to make sense of a bunch of different signals that can often feel confusing and cloudy in the moment. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a snapshot of, of um, futurism. But also, so I've been independent professionally for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. And that means I've had a lot of flexibility in terms of futurism, yes. But I'm also advising quite a few startups um, and governments as they look at often disruptive business models. So I mm -hmm. think in the world of startups and investing, uh, I was quite early into the sharing economy, um, working with Airbnb when most people were like, you're crazy to stay in someone's house. And policymakers were like, that's Can't illegal. Or, well, I was joking with someone earlier, how many calls I took from policymakers in cities saying, we've heard that you know about Airbnb. Um, we need to regulate it. We wanna, we wanna understand it better before we regulate it. We don't have Airbnb in our city right now because we haven't authorized it to exist. And I'm sitting there talking to them like, log on to the Airbnb site. You have 2,000 listings in <laughs> exactly. your city. Whether you want it whether or not. Whether you want it or not. And <laughs> the wake up. And so that kind of, if you think, seeing where the future was heading before policymakers necessarily saw it mm -hmm. and realizing the urgency of having startups and policymakers get talk. to know each other and talk and work together. Did you did you find that you know policymakers and government have been changing in the right direction in the last decade or so in that sense, or is uh, it just yeah. concentrated in I mean the U.S. or do you have like a broader no, view of? Yeah. So absolutely tracking overall in the the right general direction. The challenge is the challenge is that it's often. I don't want to say always too little, but it's it's too late. And yeah. this is where it also Maybe kind of mix blends. Of two, of yeah, well, it blends into this idea of flux and change where different paces of change for different kinds of organizations and different sectors even, right? You think about the startup world, it's change, change, change. like every day is something new and right. people are used to like iterating and pivoting and right. Government, but most people in even most companies are not used to that. No, right? Large companies are somewhere further on the spectrum. Right. And then I joke that, uh, and I'm trained as a lawyer, so I can say this. Law, the law and public policy and also insurance. These of are course. sectors that 
They're designed to resist right. change. They're designed to mitigate. They do not want any kind of risk. Right. That's also why they're important as stable institutions, Bing right? You can't Bingo. change all the time, right? Bingo. The challenge we face, and this is probably a separate conversation, is that the pace of change in the world of technology, particularly, platform economy, so forth, is increasing so much faster right. than the capacity of to change laws and policies to, to keep up that there's a there's a very real i mean ongoing risk of that imbalance mm -hmm. but i do think the last 10 years have taught a lot of people a lot of lessons about the importance of responsible public policy and one of the worst examples is probably uber go back 10 years ago and they were like we don't care we're going to be Everything the bull goes. in the in the china <laughs> shop and if we look back now we go wow policymakers to some degree didn't know turned a blind eye thought it wouldn't catch on right. but also the company was very irresponsible yeah. about how they Several engaged or didn't right. right and i call that one out because it's a globally right. like it's a known entity and so what's interesting that some of the things we've learned they haven't always been easy lessons we've learned a lot about what to do what not to do what to try to keep on your radar but yeah and what about entrepreneurs i mean they're always facing these huge challenges yeah. you're an investor you're actually a venture partner mm -hmm. at the fund as well how do you when you talk to them you know what are they afraid of in terms of the change the uncertainty it's a very hard job to be an entrepreneur right to be a ceo of a small company that wants to conquer the world most likely it will go wrong um, what have, has been your experience with the entrepreneurs? Yeah, so it's so interesting because on the one hand, you've got like change in my business, like, and, and a much greater willingness and excitement to change. And actually this prompts a different, <laughs> a different lens, something that often comes up in, in conversations like this, which is when we say change, we treat it like one word, like it's all the same thing, like change. And I meet people every day and they're like, I love change. I'm a change junkie, right? right. And I'm like, hang change on a minute. Change the others, not Hang on a minute. <laughs> Bingo. What kind of change are you talking about? Because in my experience and research, and I, I've been at this for like 30 plus years when I go back and think about when did I really get interested in change and uncertainty and what do you do when you don't know what to do? That um, you and I, I don't mean to speak for you, but you and I, most humans, we tend to love change we can choose. Of course. A new job, a new adventure, or a new relationship. Or change on others. <laughs> right? Or having others change. That would be great. Or we, we love change, we hate being changed. Right. Um, but what's interesting, so those kinds of changes are easy for many people in terms of I'm opting in. Most humans really struggle with changes we can't control. The kind of change that blindsides you, the kinds of change that disrupts your plans. I thought the world was heading here. You know, the last two and a half years have been a crash course in many of those kinds of changes. And that's where entrepreneurs too, they can get whipsawed by that kind of change. Most humans can. And what's fascinating to me as well, we can talk about, for example, change in your business model versus change in your personal life. A change that's easy for you might be really hard for me. A change that feels fast for you might feel slow for me. And so part of what I'm doing in my book and my broader work is helping people unpack their relationship to change. And I know that might sound a little bit woo-woo, but we're so focused on, and part of what got me into this as a futurist, we're so focused on change management. 
by its very definition that implies we can manage it, we can engineer it, we can control it, which for some kinds of change is true, but for the vast majority of what's coming, yeah, and I kept having these conversations with a range of entrepreneurs and organizational types where I realized our relationships to change are really fraught. They're really complex and as a whole, we are very poorly prepared for what's coming. Because as hard as the last two and a half years have been, pandemic, social justice, climate, like all of this flux, all of this change, and I say this, I'm gonna get, there's a hopeful message in this, but the future looks more like the last two and a half years Mm -hmm. than what came before it. And I don't mean necessarily a pandemic. Another pandemic or and that, well, I will but tell you, as a futurist, the, the running, it's not a joke, it's a serious joke, but the, the running line has been, in the world of futurism, neither a pandemic nor the Great Resignation was a surprise. Right. If you'd yes. been tracking this, we knew, and we know that another pandemic is coming. The goal is not soon and not bad. Right. But the point being this idea of like, I just want not just things to go back to how they were, but I just, I want like no change. I want just, let me catch my breath. And that's interesting too, because today there's also the onset of what what we're calling change fatigue, which is like so much Constant change. change. It's just too much. And we have to gird ourselves for that's more the norm. And not that fatigue needs to be the norm, but my message being, We've got to radically reshape how we see change, think about change, talk about change, navigate change, which is very different than managing change. It seems to me that when you are talking with entrepreneurs, well, normally they are like leaders and they are, you know, type A personality, super Mm -hmm. driven, that sometimes might actually lead to more resistance to change, right? Because these are people that are very sure of themselves. They know what they're doing. They know they're going to conquer the world. They don't need to hear anybody. So how's your experience been with these type of people which are really special and, and you know, they have their qualities, but it's it gets hard to get into their heads, right? Absolutely. And let me tell you two different stories, two different iterations of this. The first one is I am often, and here it could be an entrepreneur, it could be a CEO, but a leader. Right. A leader. And they say to me, what should I have my team do to manage change better, to navigate change? And I'm always like, how about you? Like, like I can delegate this thing, right. which is actually an uncomfortable thing. And, yeah, and this is more in established companies where you have more of a hierarchy and a structure. And I say this respectfully, but managers and senior leaders are usually the biggest bottlenecks. Right. They're the ones who have the most vested in that old structure, that thing that is no longer. Even if they don't realize it, right? Precisely. And so we're jumping ahead a little bit, but so much of what I'm working on is about how we see how we see others, how we see what's happening, how we see ourselves, how we see uncertainty. And everything from, do you see it from a place of hope or fear? Do you see it as something that's the responsibility of others versus you? Even though you might be super successful according to a lot of external metrics, you may be really rattled by change internally. And this is a slightly different angle in the business world, in the boardroom, in the meeting room, we spend so much time talking, for example, about our strategy around a given change, a given product, a given investment. That's fine, nothing wrong with strategy. We don't spend any time talking about 
what's the attitude? What's the, are you showing up to this given change from a place of hope or fear? And that's this interesting thread, that through thread of my work, which is when it comes to navigating change and uncertainty well, the one factor, it's not whether a change is big or small. It's not whether it was a surprise or you'd known about it for a long time. It's whether you see a given change from a place of hope or fear. And it's fascinating because it's when we're afraid, and this is where even leaders, they don't profess being afraid on the outside, but if they're resisting change, there's a latent fear. Sometimes it can be founded, but a lot of it, a lot of times you don't really know where it comes from. It might from. be unconscious as mm-hmm. well, right? And, mm-hmm. and people don't even realize that they are afraid or they can't get to exactly. they don't know each other, right? And you, so, they know it's themselves. Exactly. And so the, 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 the interesting part about my work, I mean, I'm not... I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, this isn't like, it, well, it's, there's an element of self-help, but that's not my domain. It's business. It's all about what we do, but whatever we're going to do is going to be shaped by who we are. And so it's this kind of inside out approach, professional, and I spend a lot of time working on professional development, career development, all of that sort of thing, leadership as well. We can't just teach that and expect somehow it like takes off on its own. It's the the personal growth is necessary to thrive in the workplace and beyond. And so that's just this interesting toggling between like, is it business and leadership and strategy or is it like self-help? And it's like we're actually walking this really fine line. And I do think over the last couple of years that a lot of people have started to see You can come up with all kinds of HR policies and this, that, and the other on paper. But if you're not actually caring for people as humans outside of their titles, outside of their um, roles and responsibilities, you're never going to get their full potential at work. So it's see, fun. Do you see a marked generational sort of mm. shift in terms of how people perceive change? Yeah. Um, you know, is, is it going in the right direction or, you know, Are, are people now, I mean, the newer generations, uh, different? Well, it's a great question because this whole notion of like the life cycle of flux or the life cycle of change. And no demographic, no individual is like the winner, so to speak. Right. Because what you have is on the one hand, as we get older and we have more life experience, we've seen more kinds of change. Right. And we're kind of like, I can take that in stride because I'd seen it before or whatever. However, as we get older, we also get, relatively speaking, in general, more set in our ways. Right. So this is what I was taught. And less willing to change, basically. And hybrid work is a great example of like, right. Mm, right. <laughs> so, so there are some things that are an advantage and some other things that are harder, habits that are harder to break. And then if we look younger, and in particular, you know, the younger you go, and here I have, you know, you talk to teenagers or college students and it's like my whole life has been changed i entered this world and it was just like if you think over the last 15 20 years right yeah. and what's defined their lives there's also an interesting overlap with you know being a digital native right growing up where you've got and this might have mentioned it earlier or ought to have mentioned it earlier where people say is there more change today <laughs> and it's like there's always what been else? change and there's always been more change and and now this faster pace of change. But what's interesting is that thanks to technology, it's not that all of a sudden there's like this explosion of change, it's that we're so much more aware 
of so much more change. In the past, there was change all around you, but you weren't inundated by the world. Information, right? Just information everywhere. And we now know when disasters strike and when there's instantly. And that's an overload. That's an overload on our brain. Right. Right. So back to young people where it's like they're much more accustomed, like change all the time, but it doesn't make them immune of somehow like I got it all figured out. And being young and growing up and figuring out how the world works, that's hard. Right. It's more, there's more uncertainty and you haven't seen that much. So you're like, oh my God, what's next? Exactly. But I will say in this like generational, not split, like as we toggle between, I joke these days that a lot of what I'm doing around this relationship to change, it is a lot of unlearning. So as we grow up and we learn a lot of what I can say our generation, I can say quite a few ages here, we were taught, and here I'm generalizing a little bit, but we were taught that the world is to some degree predictable and controllable and under our domain. And if you do X, you'll get Y. And if you climb the ladder, the career ladder, you'll find success do at the well. top. And and that your value is determined by how much money you have. And I mean, these are just sort of narratives that we right. have. And then change hits and you realize... Actually... Actually, what we've been taught about the world doesn't seem to align much with right. the world that we're actually in. And that gets really exciting if you can, again, it's so much about how we see, but that's really threatening to people who feel like their whole worldview is collapsing. And what I'm trying to help people do, it's not about good or bad, or it's not critical. It's more like we all have this opportunity. And I do think the last couple of years have shined the light on just how big the opportunity is to rethink and reshape how we see the world, the kind of world we're building. I think about Estoril Conference and this whole notion of for planet, for people, for peace. Um, a lot of this unlearning of, as adults, we have a lot more to unlearn because we have all of these narratives, what I call right. scripts, running in our head that we need to unpack. Younger people are farther from that being ingrained. <laughs> and what's fascinating to me is the number of young people I've spoken to. The, my book isn't the audience isn't young people per se, but how many of them are like, you're speaking the language, but you're giving us vocabulary and concepts that we can use. And also for adults to be like, oh, here's where we can start. Yeah. Right, right. Now back to Portugal. So Mm -hmm. there's been a big change, right? People like you are coming. There's so many friends coming to Portugal. Was it your first time here? Is it your first time here? No, and I, I love that I get to tell you this story. So my i'm gonna date myself here and i don't yeah i love that you you don't know this you wouldn't you don't have reason to know this my first visit to portugal was in 1993. Oh, really? i was a teenager technically <laughs> teenager and i was studying in the uk mm-hmm. and i had studied um, politics philosophy economics okay. and i had studied a whole bunch about the european union and which countries were exceeding when in 1993 it's pretty early in the European Union. And I had this vision. I had studied uh, Portuguese and Spanish politics and economics. and And I was just fascinated. So the fun thing is, this was back when train travel was like romantic. (laughs) I got on a boat and I ended up in Paris and I took a train nonstop from Paris to to Lisbon, Lisbon, which was two days. (laughs) And I landed in Lisbon (laughs) and I, I basically entered this like magical, and it's just me, teenager, blonde, 
everyone thought she's lost. How did she end up here? But I had this amazing time. There were tourists back then, but not as many as today. Not even close, right? So I went down to the... um, my, my Portuguese, I understand it well. My pronunciation is not great. But the uh, Praça de Comercio, mm-hmm. I still remember because it was at Arch. And I also, I visited over the winter holidays. So it was right. December. Right. And it was gray and there were like Christmas lights around. But I, I was straight off the train. I walked under this arch. The whole plaza was empty. I do remember that of being like. Right. That doesn't happen now. <laughs> no, and I was there yesterday and thought, this is different. But that was my first visit. And then I've come back. I lived in London for some years, so I came back a bit during then uh, that time. And then I, I came back most recently in 2018 for a talk. Um, I this remember is, that. I think at the Yeah, time we tried was, to meet up, and I, I got sick, exactly. actually. But yes. um, but this is the longest time I'm spending in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like I have this time the most to offer because... My book's out in Portuguese and I get to I get to connect with society and communities and organizations at a level much deeper and in many cases brand new than what I was able to do before. No, and we have so many YGL friends that are here. Yeah. And uh, basically, so, I mean, for a small country like Portugal, I mean, a medium-sized country, I'd mm-hmm. say, uh, what does this change mean? You, it's, it's also a country that has been changing quite a lot, right? Yeah. You've seen the change from 93 to today um, with all the good and less good you know sometimes people complain oh you know everything's getting too expensive because there's yeah. too many people uh, moving here but at the same time you know there's a lot of economic activity you know the startup community is so you know vibrant here and the mm-hmm. web3 community just like moved here in the mm-hmm. last two years everybody from all over the world what do you think about you know changing countries is it possible it's definitely possible. I would say For countries some, to change, sometimes right? it can happen whether whether or not you want like right. it's coming for me, it's going back. It's so exciting to see many of the changes in Portugal. Um, it's also, and it's it's not that you, you can't control it or predict it, but you can see it in a holistic light. And what I mean by that, so I was born and raised in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. My parents were sort of hippies. I grew up in San Francisco, very different than it is today. Right. And the kind of growth and transformation that San Francisco and the Bay Area have experienced in the last 20 years, much less 40 years, we've seen some of the best things that humanity can create. We've seen some of the worst parts of humanity in terms of inequality. And and I look at this and I say, that's not a specifically San Francisco problem. No. That is is a ripple effect of growth and of policies and so forth. And so when I look at Portugal and the enormous opportunity that you have, Um, there's a lot of change to be excited about. There's a lot to learn from other places that have not done it particularly well. And here it's not, I'm always very cautious to say good or bad, but it's like growth brings lots of, and if we think of growth as different kinds of change, it brings all sorts of wonderful effects and it also brings a new set of issues challenges. and challenges. Yeah. And we're already seeing it, right? Cost of housing, who's living where, what, you know, and it's exciting to see it. I'm not shocked. I'm, I knew it was there, but I think to be here and see just how cosmopolitan Lisbon yes. is, it's like, wow. It's like a mini London nowadays. It's it incredible. is. And depending on who you are here, kind of like what I was saying before, a change that feels wonderful for me can feel, I don't want to say horrible, for, but right. can be very difficult for yes. you. And so 
how do we start to have it's for me it's starting with very simple things we don't often talk about how these changes again make us feel we just try to set policy and set strategy do something about it and so i'm trying to get people to open up and say when we actually can hear one another's stories and why i feel hopeful or why i feel 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 fearful it actually helps a meeting of the minds it helps to to see a more i'll use the term very deliberately a more responsible path forward because i think that lisbon and portugal more broadly can have an extraordinary next century mm -hmm. But not if you're not seeing the whole picture, not if you're not really paying attention and sometimes taking measures that aren't popular for short term growth, for sure. but are actually going to preserve the well-being and, and keeping in mind, too, that Portugal is first and foremost Portuguese. Of course. And retaining that. Right. But because that's I a big look, part of the charm of the whole country, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want but to I, lose that. <laughs> yeah, I see so much reason to be excited. And also I have just in the back of my mind, like we were talking about Uber, Airbnb, you know, where you're like, yeah, having access to shared transportation is super helpful. But like, what are the blind spots? And not letting the blind spots, um, not letting the fear of change totally overrun Block you and everything. say, can't happen. But also not being afraid of saying, we don't, we're not right. sure, this this change makes us anxious, so we're not going to look at it. Exactly. Because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And you yes. don't want you for it to, to get You just have to manage hair. it proactively, right? Mm -hmm. For the good mm -hmm. and for the bad. Yeah. April, it was so good to see you here Thank in Lisbon, you. in Portugal. You're very welcome. Congratulations on launching Flux. Thank and you. thank you for launching a Portuguese edition. That's that's awesome. Absolutely. And I think, I'm sure people will love it. It's great thank to see you here. Muito obrigada. Muito obrigada. <laughs> good to see you. See you another time. Bye-bye.